So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fourth chapter, verses 14 through 22. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Heavenly Father, as we see this extraordinary, this dramatic scene before us, Lord, transport us there. Let us be in that synagogue. Let us hear the voice of Jesus as he reads the words of Isaiah the prophet. Let us understand what they mean. Let us process them. Let us understand how significant it is that he says these words, how significant it is that it's at this particular place in Luke's gospel, and more than anything, Lord, how significant it is that we know the one who spoke them, that we have that personal relationship with him. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a question that I'm going to start out with this morning, um, and I'll return to it as we go through the morning. But the first thing I want to ask you is the most important question that any human being, whether you accept it or not, and I realize some people don't accept this, but the most important question that you can answer is, do you know Jesus? Uh, and, and the word know that I'm using there, I'm using it in the biblical context of to have an intimate relationship and intimate knowledge with Jesus. But I, I think that those outside of the faith would be more likely to see a problem with that. You, you know, those of us who are inside the faith, we, we understand, we, we have this, this relationship with Jesus. And so we sometimes sort of project ourselves on things. But I think those who are outside of the faith would say, Jesus who? Because, you see, there's not one idea of who Jesus is. There are so many conceptions and misconceptions about who Jesus is. I mean, millions upon millions of people are going to walk up to the gates of heaven and be turned away because they had a misunderstanding of who Jesus was. And billions of people have rejected him because they really have no clue who he is. 
And so when we ask the question or when we say, do you know Jesus? Well, it just follows. Well, what are you talking about? Do I know him intellectually? Do I know that he was an historical figure that walked around the earth? Do I know him as a great prophet or as a teacher or as a leader or the founder of an ethical situation? Do I know him as the one that the Christian church points to? Or do I know him because a lot of people throw his name around in order to get what they want? That's the reason the New Testament has given us a qualification. It's, it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And I realize that a lot of people think that's his last name, but it's not. It, it's a title. It, it really should be Jesus the Christ. And, and to put it in a more of an Old Testament context, Jesus Messiah. And, and the question really is this morning, do you know Jesus, Messiah. Do you know Jesus in the way that he is presented to us in scripture? Do you know that Jesus? And do you know the Jesus who is going to take the scroll of Isaiah and read these words and then apply them to himself? Do you know that Jesus? Because your eternity depends upon it. Whether or not you have a deep and abiding and a lasting relationship with Jesus, Messiah. Now, for those of you who haven't been here, we're making our way through the chapter, through the Gospel of Luke. And we have actually hit a major division in the book. Even though there's not a chapter designation, I, I really don't have time to go into why it's a major division. I'll say a few words, but I'll pick that up in the after church and explain it a, a little bit more fully. But Luke, as you know, just got through with the temptations of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the very next story he tells is Jesus is in Galilee in the, in, in the synagogue. Now, the the temptations, the reason he does that, the reason he jumps, and by the way, he skips a full year of Jesus' ministry between verses 13 and 14. An entire year goes by, uh, and, and he leaves it out. But the reason that he makes that jump is he wants there to be a flow in your mind between, especially that second and third temptation, and what Jesus says in the synagogue in Nazareth. If you remember in, in the second temptation, and you also remember Luke reordered them, and this is one of the reasons he reordered them. In the second temptation, Satan is trying to twist and corrupt and confuse Jesus as far as what his mission and purpose is. In other words, I want you to have a different idea of who the Messiah is. And so therefore, my temptations are going to kind of focus on that. He flashes all the kingdoms of the world in front of him. Jesus wasn't tempted by the by the by the kingdoms themselves those kingdoms are full of souls and Jesus came to save those souls he's the king of kings and so Satan says hey Jesus I can give you all these souls if you'll just give me yours it's fair trade you right they're mine to give and so you can be Messiah you can accomplish your purpose without going to the cross and then, of course, that third temptation where he took him up to the top of the of the parapet of the temple and said, jump off, because what you'll do is force your father to send his angels and catch you, because that's what his word says. And man will just usher this kingdom in immediately. All these people will see you. I've already got them primed. You'll be exactly the kind of Messiah that they're looking for. And we'll just take off. We'll take the world by storm. Well, you see, Jesus knew what he was trying to do. He was doing what he's done ever since, which is to confuse people about what Jesus' purpose and mission was. And so 
Jesus says, no, the Bible says that you worship my God and him only, and we're not going to put God to the test. But notice what Luke does. He goes directly from there to this reading of Isaiah in Nazareth. And the reason he does it is because Jesus is, in so many words, this or Luke is saying that Jesus is saying, look, <laughs> that's not the Messiah. You want to know what the Messiah is? Let's go to Isaiah and let's read chapter 61 because that's where the Messiah is revealed to us. And so we're going to establish that my mission and purpose is completely different than what everybody is expecting it to be and what Satan set it up to be. Now, we have a lot of text, so I'm going to leave our, our review or our context there and we're going to jump right into it. As I said, Luke just sort of makes the jump. He leaves out everything that John tells us about Jesus going back and forth to Galilee, going down, throwing the money changers out of the temple, turning the water into wine, probably healing the, the son of the nobleman. All of that gets left out so he can jump. And, 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 and what we're going to read here seems a little strange. So I'll explain that as we go along. Verses 14 and 15 are as close as he gets to a transition. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Now, we know that the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. We saw that. We saw that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert and was with him throughout the time of those temptations. Satan was also there, tempting him all the way through. But the Spirit now is with him as he continues his ministry. And the assumption here is that he's been with him throughout this entire year. Now, we don't want to think that the, at the baptism of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, that was when his, his, his divinity started. No, he was always divine from his conception on. But the, the Spirit enables him, he drives him and empowers him. It, it ministers to him all throughout his ministry. Well, anyway, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and you know where Galilee is. It's in northern part of Israel, just north of Samaria. But I think what is more important about Galilee, first of all, is where Jesus started his ministry and spent his initial years. But it was also a place that Hicks lived. You know, Kay and I are from the south, and when we first moved down here, everybody laughed at us because we had a southern drawl. We talked funny. Well, the people in Galilee talked funny as far as the people in Judah were concerned. And so, therefore, they were seen as almost unintelligent. So nothing really important happens in Galilee. But, of course, we know that's where Jesus' ministry started. And, and notice what, what we read after that. A report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now jump to the beginning of the 22nd verse. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, this would be confusing to us if we didn't recognize what Luke's doing. Because, well, the last time we saw Jesus and Luke, he's been in the desert for 40 days. He's an emaciated, no one knows who he is. How all of a sudden does everybody think he's great? Well, during that that year of ministry that Luke skips over, we he's working mighty deeds. He's worked his first miracles. We know from John 2 that he worked many signs and wonders down in, in Jerusalem. He's already, you know, confronted the, the chief priest, the high priest. To there in the temple throwing out their vendors and money changers. And so the point is, is by the time this story occurs, Jesus has made a name for himself. He's 
kind of a traveling celebrity, if you will, at the beginning of his ministry here in Galilee. Now, we notice that he was going to the synagogues and teaching in those synagogues throughout that region. And this is his modus operandi. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. But I'm not going to go into why synagogues were so central uh, until the after church. I'm going to have to kind of push that off. But they were. I mean, they were absolutely vital. And, and it was the center of all things Hebrew. So it was a natural place for him to go. Well, that's Luke's transition, sort of. I mean, I hope you have your tennis shoes on because we're going to move through these relatively quickly until we get down to the quote. Um, that's, that's Luke's transition. Now let's get to the specific event that he bypassed a whole year's worth of ministry to get to. And that starts in the 16th verse. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He comes to the little town of Nazareth. And you, you know this, but let me just refresh your memory. Uh, what did Nathaniel say about Nazareth? Did anything good actually come from Nazareth? Josephus, the historian of the day, doesn't even mention it. It was a no-name town. And nothing happened in Nazareth. There was no industry there. No one of any import came from Nazareth. And yet that was where God chose that Jesus would grow up. And he grew up in the synagogue that was right there in Nazareth. Now, um, we we go on and and read that as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, that was his custom. That was his modus operandi. That's what he did. Now, there's a natural reason why he would do that. Jesus is teaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is teaching the gospel. So the synagogues would have been the place to do that. Because after all, he came first for the lost sheep of Israel. And that's exactly where he's going to find them. Because on Saturday morning, everyone went to synagogue. I mean, every town and hamlet had a synagogue. I am told that you only had to have like 10 people to start a synagogue. So I don't care how small your village was, usually they had a synagogue. And one thing you could be rest assured of is that on Saturday morning, everyone who was physically capable would go and be there in synagogue. It's not like it is today, folks. I mean, we, we go to church when we feel like it, right? I don't feel good today or I've got something else to do. You know, it's no big deal. We defile the Sabbath constantly, but not in those days. In those days, if you wanted to find the entire population of a community on Saturday morning, you'd go to the synagogue because that's where they're going to be. So if Jesus wanted to get his message out before the maximum number of people, he's going to go to the synagogue. But he also had a captive audience. Again, people, when they went to synagogue, that was what they did. It's not like I'm going to breeze in and breeze out. I'm going to stomp out if I don't like what the pastor says. I've got an appointment and you're running too long, so I'm going to slip out the back door. I'm going to go get me some coffee or whatever it is. No, he had an absolutely uh, riveted uh, uh, audience when he went to the synagogue. So it was an effective method of sharing his message. In fact, it's not just effective for him, 
we read in the book of Acts that Paul did the same thing. Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Every place Paul went or the other apostles, the first place they would go was the synagogue. So we see Jesus in the synagogue of Nazareth. Now, he stands up to read. And, and, and I just want you to notice how many details Luke gives you here. Little details. And the reason he does this is he's creating drama. This is a very dramatic event that occurs. But notice what he says. He says that, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, it's not unusual that Jesus would be asked to read or to preach or to teach. Um, synagogues aren't like churches are today where you've got a pastor that you're kind of stuck with. You have to hear him every week. But in a synagogue, anyone could get up and, and, and do the reading. And, and especially if there was some traveling rabbi or visiting celebrity like Jesus, well, the very first thing they're going to ask him to do is, would you take one of the readings? Now, every Sabbath, there were two readings, actually two sermons, if you will, because the exposition would follow. They always read standing up with a scroll at a podium. And, 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 and first of all, they would read from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They would discuss the law, and then they would read from the prophets. And everyone loved the prophets because right now there was messianic fever because of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. There was messianic fever across all of, of Israel. So they loved it when someone read from the prophets. Brothers and sisters, I want to point two things out to you here. First of all, the significance of this place. The synagogue's not there anymore. If you go to Capernaum, you, you, you can see actually the foundations of the synagogue that was there during the time of Jesus. But Jesus has long since moved to Capernaum. He's actually going back as a visiting celebrity to Nazareth. But Nazareth is where he grew up. Nazareth is where the people knew him as Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph. We picked that up at the end of this 22nd verse. That's the way they saw him. And these were the faces of people who knew him as a child. But, and I'm just imagining, I like to visualize things, you know that. Is this the place where he began to realize that he wasn't like the rest of the boys? I mean, after all, he's raised up. Now, we know by the 12, by 12 years old, when he went to the temple, we know that he already knows that he's the son of God. He knows who his father is. And he has an extraordinary understanding of scripture. But was it in this this synagogue, listening to the traveling rabbis and teachers or whoever was reading the word that he began to realize, I'm not like everyone else. And I don't know that he ever had a time that he didn't know. And I'm just kind of imagining how that must have been. But what a hugely significant event it was now for him to be the one reading the scroll there in the synagogue. But the place pales next to the importance of what he read. Now, as I said, every week there would be a reading from both the law and the prophets. And usually what would happen is that the elders of the synagogue would decide which scroll was going to be read. And so Jesus is handed a scroll. Probably very reverently, they were precious and usually very ornate. 
And there was a, a place where he would put the scroll and you sort of roll it uh, like that until you reach the place where the text that he wanted would have been written more than likely in, in, in Hebrew, although he quotes it from the Septuagint. But nonetheless, he finds the place that he wants. Now, we're not told whether that particular passage was chosen for him or where just in the book of Isaiah, Jesus chose the passage. But Dr. Sproul points out in his commentary that there are over 2,000 references to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And, and, and of those 2,000 references, there's probably not a book that is more significant in revealing to us who Jesus Messiah was as the book of Isaiah. And within the book of Isaiah, there are few chapters where the mission and the purpose and the explanation of who the Messiah is, is more clearly stated than the 61st chapter. So that's where Jesus goes. And brothers and sisters, as we move into this and we see what Jesus is saying, I want you to keep in the back of your mind what happened at the beginning of this chapter. How Satan tried to manipulate, confuse, corrupt the Messiah himself to corrupt everyone's understanding of the Messiah. And now Jesus is in response to that saying, that's not the Messiah. Let me tell you what the Messiah is. And then he's going to reveal himself as that Messiah. This is hugely dramatic and extremely important in the way that he does it. Very important reading. With that said... Let's look at the reading. Now, I'm going to take this line by line because it is just such a beautiful and a rich discussion of who the Messiah is, both in his person, in his purpose, and in his mission. It starts out by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, we already talked about the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus in a way at the baptism, leading him into the desert and being with him, empowering the mighty works that he's doing. Now, granted, I know this is a hugely confusing situation. When he reads that and applies it to himself, here you have someone who is 100% a human being, and at the same time, he is 100% God. And I know the math doesn't work, but that's what uh, Scripture teaches us, is that he is a full, a holy God and a holy man. And the incarnation of God in human flesh, in particular, is the second member of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus talks about the Spirit being upon him, well, that's the third member of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is upon him, ministering excuse me, to him and empowering him. Now, granted, I know that is hugely confusing, but what's, what, what puzzles me is why you would expect it not to be complex. Did you really think God was going to be simple? Did you think he was going to be someone that wasn't even more complex being than we are? But what is really significant here, what's really important, is what Jesus is reading that Isaiah says. Isaiah 700 years before this, is writing that when Messiah comes, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Oh, he says it over and over again in his book. In Isaiah 11, he says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That would be um, a David, the Davidic Messiah. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so we understand that, that, that this is a representation of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And so that describes the fact that the Messiah is divine. That the Messiah has the spirit of God upon him. And so therefore when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah... It's a pure, a plain claim to his own divinity. Well, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because he has anointed me. That's a huge word there. Anointed. You know that that's what the word Christ means. Anointed one. That's Greek. And and that the, the Hebrew, Mashiach, means the same thing. It means Messiah's, our English transliteration of that. And what it means is the anointed one. So Jesus says, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah, I keep, I'm going to keep going back and forth between Jesus, Luke, and Isaiah because they're all saying the same thing. But Isaiah puts it in his book that the Messiah is the anointed one. Now, to be anointed in this context can mean a couple of things. On the one hand, it means exactly what we just read, that the Spirit of God is going to be upon him, okay? That he is going to be inundated with God's Spirit, that he is divine in his nature. But the second meaning of anointing is to set aside for a particular task. In other words, kings are anointed for their task. Priests were anointed for their task. Prophets were anointed for their tasks. The Messiah has been anointed. Who anointed him? God the Father anointed him, which tells us one thing very important. No one decides to be the Messiah. No one claims to be the Messiah. It is only something that is God's anointing. God set aside Jesus, second member of the Godhead, God incarnate, a man in the flesh, set aside, anointed him for the task of being the Messiah. Not the Messiah that Satan just described, but the real Messiah. And he says, this is what I have been anointed to do. And he begins to go into who that Messiah is and what his purpose is in the verses that follow. Look what he says. To proclaim good news to the poor. That's the first thing that he says. I have been anointed to proclaim good news. That's all one word, proclaim good news. It's the Greek word euangelizo, very familiar to most of us. It's a verb that means evangelism. It evangelizes. But it means to preach the good news. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Don't miss it. Jesus was anointed and sent to preach the gospel That is his primary function. That's what he did before he worked any miracles. And in fact, it was the preaching of the word of God that the miracles would authenticate. It authenticated the messenger and authenticated the message. How is it possible that in modern Christianity, that's the one thing that we've tried to cut out. That's the one thing that we have either done away with entirely or minimalized. 
And we don't want to get too much into the preaching of the word. We're going to cut it in a half or by thirds or by quarters. Because that's too boring. We need more exciting, charismatic stuff to be going on in worship services. When that was exactly what Jesus was anointed to do. Was to preach the gospel. Same thing that the apostles did. They're all called to be preachers. But notice what it says. He says that I have been anointed to proclaim Good news to the poor. In other words, there's an audience. There's a target audience that the Messiah has been sent to preach to. And it's the poor. Guess that cuts us out, doesn't it? We're the richest nation on the face of the planet. <laughs> so if, if, if that's exactly what he means, in other words, anyone who has any wealth whatsoever is cut out of that, but that's not what he means, fortunately for us. He's not talking about physical or, or material wealth or poverty. What he's talking about is spiritual poverty. Now, this is backwards from the way that it seems, okay? So listen carefully. The Messiah is sent to proclaim the good news to The spiritually broken. The spiritually bankrupt. It's exactly the same word that is used in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you if you are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are you if you are spiritually poor. Because what it means, it's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of self-sufficiency. It's the opposite of self-righteousness. Jesus tells a story, we'll, we'll get to it later in Luke, of a, of a Pharisee and a publican who go up to the temple to worship. You know this one. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I am so wonderful, that I am so righteous. And the publican is over there pounding his chest saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Well, the poor man went home justified. The rich man went home unjustified in a spiritual sense or in their own estimation. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you want to see the way Jesus thinks about the spiritually arrogant, the spiritually self-sufficient, the spiritually self-righteous, just turn to Revelation and see what he has to say to the church at Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now what is so funny about this, what's his backward, is that it is a good thing, brothers and sisters, to be blind and poor and pitiable and naked in a spiritual sense. Because then you're going to recognize that you need a savior. If you have the blessing of understanding your own depravity... That is one of the greatest blessings that anyone can have because no one who is arrogant and self-sufficient, who is self-righteous, will ever darken the gates of the kingdom of heaven. There's a place for the poor in spirit. So the Messiah came to find those who desperately needed him and knew it. Well, he goes on. And after he says that I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, he says he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Brothers and sisters, we have just about the whole gospel in that one statement. He has sent me. The word underlying it is apostello. 
And that's the verb from which we get our word apostle. Jesus is the first apostle. Jesus is the sent one. Jesus is the one that God the Father sent with a message so that all the world would know that there is salvation in him and in him alone. That he as Messiah going to the cross, paying the penalty for those he dies for, is the only pathway into salvation, period. And so he has been sent with that extraordinary message to share it with the people living in darkness. He's the apostle from heaven. Once again, he says, I have been sent to proclaim. Different word, actually. He uses a different word, this time a word that is commonly translated preach. I came to preach. And he tells us what he came to preach. I came to preach liberty to the captives. That word liberty doesn't mean the concept of liberty. I didn't come to tell you about liberation theology or to talk about the principle of liberty. It's a word that means the act of liberty or the act of making or liberating. It is the act of releasing and it is even a word that many other places in the New Testament is translated forgiveness. It tells us who the captives are. And and it tells us what the Messiah has come to do. I, I have come to preach liberty, freedom, release, forgiveness to those who are captive. Those in prison. Now what are they captive to? Well, let's not fall into the same trap that Satan has already laid, tried to get Jesus to jump into. The trap where you are captive to the Romans. So throw off the yoke of the Romans. Throw off these foreign people who are constantly causing you to be next to slaves. Throw them off. And then you will have the work of the Messiah. That's not at all what he's saying. Because they are not captive to any people group. They are captive to the universal slave master of sin. That's what he's saying. That's why the word liberty also means forgiveness. The problem here is that we are all captives, prisoners, slaves to sin. Jesus had a conversation that's very interesting about this with the Jews in the 8th chapter of John. He's explaining about himself and he says anyone who, you know, follows me knows the truth and the truth will set them free. And the Jews says, "What do you mean?" Set us free. We're Abraham's descendants. We're already free. We've never been slaves to anyone. And Jesus made the profound statement. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is bound in chains and in the prison of that sin. And I can just hear myself before I knew the Lord saying, not me. I'm not bound by anybody. I can do whatever I want. Oh, really? Just try stopping. Just try. Throw the, throw the, I challenge you. Whatever it is, whatever it is that binds you, whatever it is that you recognize as sinful behavior, whether it is gossiping, whether it is coveting, whether it is lying, whether it is stealing, whether it is lust in your head, whether it is not worshiping and loving God, whether it is throwing off the authority of those around you, whatever it is, cast it out and stop doing it right now. 
As soon as you do, you'll find out that you're a slave because you can't do it. Pretty soon you'll give it up and you'll say, well, what a worthless exercise after all. Who needs to do that? You can't do it because you're a slave to sin. And now Isaiah, Jesus quoting Isaiah says that the Messiah has come to preach forgiveness and liberty and release and freedom from that which binds you, that which holds you prisoner, which is your own fallenness. Your own sinfulness. Brothers and sisters, that's the purpose. That's the mission of Jesus right there in a nutshell. Just beautifully stated. But he goes on. He's not finished. He says, and recovering of sight to the blind. That's a familiar metaphor, isn't it? We see that all through, especially the New Testament. Recovering the sight of the blind. And one of the miracles that Jesus regularly worked was to restore the sight of those who were blind. Whether that was congenital, like the man born blind in John 9. Or those who were blind because of the combination of sun and sand and the desert and the eye problems. Very prolific in that part of the world. They could not see anymore. But even when Jesus made the blind to see, that was symbolic in nature because it was a discussion of what he came to do. Jesus came to share the truth with those living in darkness. Once again, we can turn to Isaiah who beautifully states it. There shall come forth a... I'm sorry. Let me see if I can find it. Therefore... Justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. Brothers and sisters, that's that right there. You want to know what it means to be poor? In spirit, to be the kind of person is to be poor is to be in that situation and to know it. To be captive is to be in that situation and need someone to come and set you free. It's the metaphor flows from that to the metaphor of light and darkness. We live in darkness. We don't understand. We don't have the knowledge. Jesus came so that he might be the light of heaven to open up our eyes and open our understanding. John tells us in his prologue, the true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The last phrase is usually important. You see, that's the mission and the purpose of the Messiah to come and shine the light on the path on how to find your way to heaven. It's like he has come to set the, 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 the captives free way down in the dungeon. And he goes down and he takes their shackles off. And then he shines the light to show them the way out of the dungeon entirely and completely. So that they might see the way to salvation. It is through him and it is through him alone. And once again, I'm going to hammer this into you. I keep doing it because it's so significant. It is exactly the opposite kind of a Messiah than, than Satan tried to establish in those temptations. Because that Messiah can't save you. Cannot show you the light. 
cannot take you out of the dungeon, cannot forgive your sins, can't do any of that. And it is that thought that I think leads to what is considered to be the great anomaly of Jesus' reading. Because here he goes, he's reading from Isaiah 61, and all of a sudden he stops. It's like, well, first of all, he skipped one verse or one phrase. And then he quotes or reads, I don't know if it was all open, out of a different chapter. He's been in Isaiah 61, and all of a sudden, out of out of the reading, he jumps over to the 58th chapter, and this is what he reads. Is not this the fast? Well, he didn't read the whole story, just, just one of it. This, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. That's what he means when he says, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Well, who's oppressing them? Who is the oppressor who has the, 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 the people who are in bondage, who are captive, who are in prison, who are slaves to their sins? Who's the taskmaster? It's the devil. The same one who tried to tempt him to be a different Messiah than the Messiah that Jesus actually was. And so therefore, he adds that to it. It's not just that I'm going to free you from prison. It's not just that I'm going to break your bonds. It's not just that I'm going to show you the way out of that prison. I'm going to destroy the jailer. Because he's the one who has his foot on your neck. Whether you recognize it or not. I have come to preach liberty to those Who are oppressed. Those who are under the bondage of the enemy. Exactly what Paul said to the Ephesians when he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers. Against the authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil. And the heavenly places. Well he wraps it up by going back to the 61st chapter. And he reads this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh my goodness, this is just so beautiful. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And once again, I don't have time to go into it now. I will to a little bit in the after church. But what he's talking about is the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, there was the year of Jubilee. And, and, and have you read that? Do you know what they did during the year of Jubilee? A lot of other things. But one thing they did was to forgive the debts of the debtor. No matter how much red ink you had on your ledger, it was wiped out. All the debts eliminated. Absolutely. You could even return to your home estate or your homeland. And even if you've had to sell it or you were in debtor's prison, it was restored. It was a time of unparalleled grace and mercy where God allowed those who had made mistakes in their lives to have a second chance. And now... The Messiah has come to declare the age of the gospel, the age of compassion, the age of mercy and grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. That's what the Messiah has come to do. What? An extraordinary reading Jesus has done, not only to counteract the devil, but also to say, this is my ministry. This is why the Messiah was called. 
Well, after he's finished, once again, notice the details. Notice how Luke slows you down and gives you these details because he wants you to see the fullness. He wants you to imagine in your minds. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, actually, this is the way they did things in those days. I told you there's two sermons every every Sabbath, okay? So, you know what I do. I start out by reading the passage that we're going to exposit, and I say a prayer, and then I exposit the word. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's read the word. He's read his passage. He's read his scripture reference for the day, and now he sits down. But he's not sitting down in the congregation. He's sitting down in the teacher's chair. Because that was right next to the podium where the, the, the scroll would have been read. And when he sat down in the teacher's chair, it means it's time for the sermon. And everybody else is sort of sitting at his feet. In fact, Dr. Sproul says that's where the phrase sitting at the master's feet or the teacher's feet comes from. Because that's exactly what they would do every Saturday. The teacher would sit down and everybody would be uh, um, uh, sitting around. And the teacher, the preacher would exposit the words interpret the word that he had read. So Jesus sits down and we read that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. I mean, after all, this is a great messianic passage. Now, this is a traveling celebrity, the local boy done good. And here he is and he is going to share with us what he just read. And Jesus gives the kind of sermon that I know you all wish I would give, a one-liner. Dr. Sproul says this is the shortest sermon in Scripture. And in, in the way I imagine it is, as everyone is looking at him, he's looking around the room as I'm doing right now, and he's locking gaze, eyes, gaze with people. And then with the greatest drama, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And, and, and that has been fulfilled. That can either be a past perfect, meaning it's completed in the past, or an imperfect perfect, meaning that it's ongoing uh, and, and, and that it's not completely, but it is as good as completed. So Jesus says, I have come and I am the one I just read to you about. And by implication, he is saying all 2,000 references in the Old Testament, everything the Old Testament has to say about the Messiah, I am. You know me as Jesus Bar-Joseph. My name is Jesus Messiah. Yeshua Mashiach. I am Jesus Messiah. So I'll ask you the question that I asked you earlier now that you kind of know what I mean by that. Most important question you will ever answer in your life and your eternity depends on it. Do you know Jesus Messiah? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him intimately? Does he know you? Let me explain why this is so important. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to look around you and notice that something's not right. Oh, the culture tells you that everything is good, that we're evolving and we're all getting better, except you look around you and you don't see that. History has not put that out. You see anger. You see hatred. 
You see rage, you see rape, you see incest, you see adultery, you see war, you see um, every kind of, of, of manifestation of ugliness that you can find, greed, greed and lust and abortion and drugs and alcohol. You see this all around you and yet they tell you that we're all getting better and you say, when is it going to actually get better? Because all I see is a mess and, 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 and actually... I know in my heart that I am part of that mess. Now, the same people who say that you're getting better also tell you that you're of absolutely no consequence whatsoever in the universe. You're just a piece of protoplasm. That you're here for a little dance, that you, you come from nowhere, you're going nowhere, and then somehow you are supposed to find some kind of significance in your short little life, although you are a cosmic accident, and you hear it. And you're taught it and you accept it. But in those dark times, in those troubled times, when you wake up in the middle of the night, when you're afraid you're going to die, when something happens, you have this deeply troubled feeling. What is it? What is life? Is there life after this? Is this all that there is? Is there nothing more? So what do you do? How do you deal with that? You anesthetize it in some way. You, you, you drink it away. You take drugs, sensuality, your career, your family, whatever it is. You find something to anesthetize the thought so you don't have to have a thought about where you came from and where you're going. And then there's the whole idea about God, Right? Oh, they tell you there's no God. They tell you that you just were an accident, that you evolved out of gas molecules, and here you are. But somewhere down in your soul, you doubt that. Somewhere down in your soul, you question whether that can possibly be true, because I can't imagine things all just happening by chance. There has to be a prime mover. There has to be someone who started this, and if so, am I accountable to him? And even though everything in your culture tells you that you're not, deep down in your soul, you know that you are. And that terrifies you. Because you know that you're a captive. You know that your sins will condemn you. You never face it. But in your heart of hearts, you know it's true. So brothers and sisters and friends, Jesus Messiah came to save you from that. We call it the great dilemma. It's the situation that you find yourself in. It's the situation of life. And Jesus Messiah came to save, to save you from out of that. So let me just sort of wrap this up with two prayers. It's going to seem odd, but I have two prayers for you because I have no control over them. And an invitation. My first prayer for you, and this seems like it's counterintuitive, and this is primarily for those who don't know Jesus, even though it is really important for every single one of us to question ourselves and ask us, is the Messiah, is the Jesus that we really know truly Jesus Messiah? But my prayer for you is this, and it seems counterintuitive. I pray that you will become spiritually bankrupt. I pray that you will become spiritually destitute, whatever it takes Whatever it takes to humble you. 
Whatever it takes to to rob you of that self-sufficiency, that self-dependency, that self-righteousness. It is the hallmark of our culture. It is a great virtue to climb to the top of the craggy peak and say, I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my own ship. I pray that that is stolen away from you and that you are humbled and that you recognize That you are blind and poor and wretched and pitiable and naked before a holy God. That is my prayer for you and I pray also that God would open your eyes. I pray that he would shine the light of truth in the darkness of your soul. I can't do that. You can't do it. I can't change you. I, I can warn you. I can tell you how important it is. I can ruin your day. I I can make it essential. I can read to you from Scripture that you must be born again. You must be regenerated. You must have a relationship with Jesus Messiah in order to be saved. But I can't do it. So I pray that God would. Because he's the only one that can truly regenerate you and give you a new heart and open your eyes. So that you can see the truth. And after that, brothers and sisters and friends, after, after your eyes are opened and, and, and the light of truth shines in your heart, I pray that you would realize what Jesus is saying here. But I also invite you to accept it, to believe in it, to trust in it. Jesus said, I came to evangelize. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the poor in spirit. I came so that you might be saved. I came so that you might be forgiven. I came so that you could have your sins atoned for and removed from you. Those sins hold you captive. And I just pray to God that your response isn't like my response All those years that I said I was not captive to anybody. Most of you know that I had a serious drinking problem. I spent 15, 20 years as an alcoholic. You know what changed me? You know what changed? You know what started my, 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 my path out of alcoholism? When I tried to quit. Never tried to quit before. I'm good. I can take care of that. My biological brother came down one day and he's got the same problem. He says, well, you know something that was getting away with me. So I had to get down to where I'm a five o'clock drinker. And I decided I had to do the same. It's the hardest thing I ever did. Hardest thing I took on by myself, which is to even stop drinking until five o'clock. Five oh five. I'm three sheets to the wind. But I would, I waited until five o'clock and then I started drinking in the morning again and I knew I was lost. It wasn't until I tried to cast the chains off that I knew I was lost. Whatever it is that binds you, whatever your sin is, and there's a gazillion of them that you've committed this morning, whatever that sin is, simply try to stop it. And you will realize something. You're a slave. You're a slave to your fallenness. You're a slave to the culture. And you're a slave to sin. May God grant you to know that and to see it and to understand that only Jesus Messiah sets the prisoners free. Sometimes it's easier for people to believe in evil than it is for them to believe in good. You look at the polls, people are more likely to believe in the devil than they are to believe in God, actually. That's crazy, but it. It's true. 
And I think the reason for that is you see so much evil around you. You, you look at the evil of the world and you say, okay, I can't deny that. That's real. My question is, where's the good? And, and, and a lot of people will use that as, an, as a reason not to believe in God. You know, how can I believe in a God, you know, who lets so many bad things happen? Really? You absolve yourself to that degree. You absolve humanity to that degree. It's like going and burning a house down to the very ground, setting it because you wanted to, and then turning around God and said, if you were real, you wouldn't let me do that. It's not like you have no culpability. It's not like we don't have any culpability. We're the ones who make this world so evil and wicked. Jesus came to release you from the oppressor. You don't realize that he's got your foot, his foot on your neck, do you? You don't realize because it doesn't hurt. You, you, you see, it, it's not because somebody has me on the ground and his foot is on my neck and I can't get up. It's that I'm perfectly comfortable in the world that I'm in. I mean, I'm perfectly happy. Everything's going along just fine. I've got all the money I need. I've got a great future. And so therefore, I'm, what are you talking about? Somebody who's oppressing me. And you don't see it. You don't see that that's exactly what he wants you to see until it's too late. Oh, there's a broad road that leads to destruction and everybody on it's happy. <laughs> hey, look at those poor Christians suffering on that hard road and you say, well, what's with them? Oh, my dear friend, recognize you have an enemy. Threefold enemy, it's the devil, it's the culture, and it's your own flesh. And Jesus, Messiah, is the only one who can release you from that. John tells us the greater is he that is in us than is in the world. And Jesus himself said in the world you have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Devil is too strong for you. But he is not too strong for our Lord. He's already won the victory. We know how this ends. So therefore turn to the one. Who can save you. And the last thing I want you to, to recognize I wish you could see your rap sheet. I don't want to see mine. But if you, if, if you think you're basically a good person, I wish you could see what you have done that condemns you before a holy God. <laughs> you're talking about a long rap sheet? You're talking about things that you cannot possibly make right. If you were to spend an eternity trying to work that off, you couldn't work it off. Because you have sinned against a holy God so many times that you can't even count it. Jesus came to set the debtors free. To wipe out all of that red ink. To take that rap sheet. To go down into the prison. To pull you out. Get rid of the jailers. And take rid of that rap sheet and burn it. It cannot be held against you ever, ever again. That's who Jesus Messiah is. And let me just leave you with this. You might ask yourself, and I hope you do. I really do. I hope that you ask yourself, well, how do I get from here to there? Okay, I'm beginning to understand. I get it. Jesus Messiah. I need to know him. How do I do it? Faith. It's a religion based on belief, folks. That's what Jesus calls you to do is to believe in him. Justification that we have. It's by faith, by believing. But wait a minute. Let's not twist that word the way the devil twists the word Messiah. 
Let's make sure that you understand that's not a nominal, a casual, a shallow faith. This is a belief that goes down into the fiber of who you are. And it is a belief not in some manufactured, made up, watered down, diminished Jesus, but in Jesus Messiah. It is to say, I believe that you are the son of God. And that you were ordained and anointed to come and preach the good news to me. That if I was the only person on earth, you would preach to me. Because you love me that much. I believe that you went to the cross and that you hung on that cross. And if I put my trust in you, my sins were placed upon your shoulders, the one who knew no sin. And that God poured his fierce wrath that I deserved down on you and punished and atoned for and propitiated and expiated those sins to where my rap sheet is clean. I believe That he died on that tree. I believe that they put his dead body in a tomb. I believe that that body saw no corruption. I believe that on the third day, praise God, hallelujah, the grave couldn't hold him because it was not meant for the perfect. Death is a result of sin. Jesus was raised from the grave to show he was exactly who he said he was. He did exactly what he said he did and that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. I believe. That he ascended to heaven. I believe. That he stands now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Ruling and reigning his kingdom. I believe that his Holy Spirit is alive and well and working in this world. I believe that his church will never fail. I believe that he will come again. And I believe that when he comes again, he will bring a host of angels. Everything will be different. I will be resurrected. He has prepared a place for me so that I can be where he is. And I will spend an eternity in his presence glorifying his name I believe and I can tell you something on the authority of scripture I can tell you this that if you believe in that way in that Messiah you will be saved so I leave you with the question that I asked you at the beginning most important question you can ever answer. Do you know Jesus, Messiah? Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we, um, oh my goodness, as we close this extraordinary, this extraordinary piece of scripture at, Pray that your spirit will use my paltry words, but not my words, but the, the words that that Isaiah wrote, that Jesus quoted, that Luke wrote down, and that we simply read to show us who Jesus is. Lord, in the eternity that you give us, we will never be able to thank you for that. We give you the glory and we pray once again that you will bless those who hear this with spiritual brokenness with eyes that are open and accepting the free gift of eternal life that you give them through faith in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.